Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. Just over a year ago, our family was preparing to move into this church building that God graciously provided for us. Over the summer of 2020, we worshiped in one of the few places that was actually open for us to worship in, in spite or as a result of COVID. And it just so happened to be a comedy club on Franklin Street. The building was called The Pit, and it was certainly a unique setting to have church with caricature sketches on the wall and a giant wall of liquor that was displayed right in the middle of our meeting area. And along with that, our access to the air conditioning was limited. And on more than one occasion, and Tim and Alina can vouch for this, as we would show up early for music practice, the building would be at least 90 degrees. And so that made preaching on hell a lot more appropriate and effective. It was less than ideal setting for a church, but we were thankful for God's provision. During the week of our move, I had taken the church's trailer, parked that in front of the pit on Franklin Street, and walked inside and began to load the remaining items that were inside that building. As I loaded everything up, I closed the trailer up, and I jumped in my pickup truck, and I drove over here. And as I got out of my truck, I looked at my phone, and there was a notification on there uh, through our church's Facebook Messenger. And somebody had sent me, or the church, a message that read this. Hi, I saw your pastor loading up his trailer near the pit in Chapel Hill, and I'm curious to learn more. But I'm also equally curious to know your church's stance on same-sex partnerships. How does a Christian respond to that, especially through Facebook Messenger? You know, the Bible commands us to walk in love, but what does walking in love look like when you're dealing with someone that stands for something that directly opposes the Word of God? How do we lovingly treat someone that opposes the truth? The answer to these questions is exactly what the Apostle John writes in 2 John. So take your Bibles with me and turn to the book, or the letter, I should say, of 2 John. The three epistles of John are not addressed to any kind of specific church, but rather to a group of Christians that were living within the area or the region of Ephesus. At this particular time, the Apostle John was older in his age, which is why he refers to himself as the elder in writing this letter. He is also a pastor as well. He had the responsibility of of really being the pastoral oversight of these churches that were meeting around Ephesus. The overall tone of John's second letter is deeply personal and emotional. As one can see through a reading of the letters, John had a great and deep love for the Christians. In the first verse of 2 John, the Apostle John specifically addresses the letter to the elect lady. Many commentators are divided on to whom this is actually referring to. Some commentators say that he is using this in a metaphorical sense to refer to either a specific church or a group of churches. Other commentators, based upon the the entire context of the letter, believe that he's referring to an actual specific lady. My stance on this, and looking at this from a face value standpoint, as well as the context of the entire letter, as that the Apostle Paul is writing a personal letter to a Christian lady. Just like most of the epistles, this letter was sent to address the problem of false teachers. But John pinpoints this warning to a specific issue that could have occurred, perhaps occurred, but could have certainly occurred within the church. 
At this moment in history, Christianity had exploded. Now, of course, God being the main reason for the exponential growth of Christianity, but one of the other major factors for that was the unusual sense of hospitality that the Christians showed, not only for her own, but also for those that were pastors and apostles. If you were to do a study all throughout the different epistles of Paul, you would quickly notice on numerous occasions that Paul contributes his ongoing of his ministry towards the care and the love that the local churches had for himself. Paul speaks about the importance of hospitality in Galatians chapter 6, verse 6. He states, Let him who is taught the word, in other words, the pastors, the apostles, share in all good things, I'm sorry, that's the church, share in all good things with whom he teaches, being the pastor and the apostles. The entire letter of Philippians is, as we talked about this past Wednesday night, is a thank you letter to the church of Philippi for the kindness and care that they continue to show towards the Apostle Paul, even after the Apostle Paul left and served in other areas. Paul speaks about the overwhelming love and care he had for the church and the thankfulness he had for the church in Philippians chapter 4, verse 18, in which he states, Indeed, I have all and I abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus being a church member whom the church sent and gave to Paul, having received of Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. We see the importance of hospitality within the church of, of, of Acts in Acts chapter 2. As God officially birthed the church through the salvation of 3,000 souls, it continues, the church grow, grew by continuously steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. When there was a need to support the apostles and others within the church, Acts describes the church as having all things in common. They sold their possessions, their goods, they divided amongst all of themselves and distributed that to anyone that had need within the church. So the church was both trained in hospitality as well as had a tremendous heart for hospitality. So along with his sincere heart came a tremendous set of challenges. Since the apostles and pastors depended upon the hospitality and the generosity of the local churches, it was not uncommon for the apostles to live with people that were in that church. For example, the apostle Paul requests in the book of Philemon that they would prepare the guest room to receive him. He also lives with Aquila and Priscilla at some time in which he is planting a church while in Ephesus. The New Testament church was familiar with housing pastors and apostles. The apostle John understood, though, that false preachers would try to utilize this sincere heart of hospitality to their own advantage. And so they would try to creep in to the houses of sincere believers and infiltrate by spreading false doctrine. We see this in verse 10 of this letter. The apostle John says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, talking about the true doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. So in order to develop his entire point, John gives two admonishments. First off, he encourages the Christians to walk in truth and love, and then he concludes with a specific warning against housing those false teachers. So he begins with this admonishment of walking in truth and love. And so we're only going to look at the first six verses here this morning. Let's read together verses 1 through 6. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, not only I, but also all those who have known the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. 
Grace and mercy and peace be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth. As we have received the commandment from the Father, and now I plead with you, lady, not as though I write a new commandment to you, but that which we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. Dear Heavenly Father, in the brief moments that we have here this morning, my prayer is that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would set aside distractions from our minds, from our hearts, so that we can dive into your word and digest the truths that you have for us through the Apostle John. In Jesus' name, amen. There must have been some sort of great concern from the Apostle John towards this group of Christians. John understood the dangerous influence that the false teachers would have upon this impressionable congregation. But before John addresses the danger of false teachers, he starts with this foundation of the Christian faith, to walk in love and to walk in truth, which brings us to our title of our message this morning, Walking in Truth and Love. There's an apparent theme in this letter. In the first six verses, the word love appears four times. And the word truth appears a total of five times. In fact, this subject of truth is a subject niche that the Apostle John focuses on. The word truth appears 25 times in his gospel. And then another 11 times in John's first and third epistles. The word love is another subject niche of the Apostle John. The word love appears 57 times in John's gospel and another 40, uh, 49 times in his first and third epistles. So these words were extremely important to the Apostle John. John begins this letter with a greeting in verse 1. He says, to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. John then adds, not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. John describes his love for this lady and her children as a love in the truth. And then he further adds to the other people that love this lady are ones that know the truth. And so the truth is both a description of the love that he has and the definer of the people, which makes us question, as he further continues in verse 2, that the truth abides in us and will abide for us forever. What does John mean by this truth? What is this truth? Since this letter was written in chronological order, John assumes that his audience has already read his first epistle. That's just an assumption that he is making. The very first epistle of John is very similar to the second and third uh, epistles of John. It was written to a group of Christians that were falling prey to the false teachers. In 1 John, we gain a glimpse, just a small glimpse, of this truth that he is referring to. One of the requirements that of really being an apostle was being an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. John begins this letter really by stating the credentials that he has and writing this subject of truth. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, he says, That which from the beginning, which we have heard, being an apostle, that walk with Jesus, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning, and then he uses this phrase here, concerning what? The word of life. The full implications of John's specific use of this phrase, word of life, goes all the way back to his description of the incarnation found in the gospel of John. So hold your finger here and flip back with me to John chapter 1. The gospel of John, not his epistle, John chapter 1. In John 1, the apostle states, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John claims in John 1, 1, that the Word is, first off, eternal, 
by using that phrase in the beginning was the word. The word was always there. It wasn't created. He also goes on to state that the word was with God, which means that the word is a specific aspect of God. And then he goes on to say that the word is God. John seems to be delivering some sort of riddle. And so anybody that's reading the Bible that may not be familiar with this would say, well, what is he talking about? Are we supposed to try to figure this out on our own? What is he referring to? But John continues. He says, he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by him and through him, and without him was nothing that was made. In him was life, and the life was a light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Clearly, there is something unique and supernatural to this word. But what or who is the word that John is referring to? Now, I'm privileged to be able to stand before a congregation that is extremely educated, and I mean that with all of my heart. Most of you in here are far smarter than I am, but on top of that blessing is that majority of you in here have grown up in church and you're familiar with the Word of God. And so I believe I can stand up here in full confidence and ask you, what is the Word that John is referring to? And you would answer, Jesus Christ. And in that, you would be absolutely correct. And so my intent here this morning is not to inform you on something that perhaps you already know, but help connect the dots between the relationship of the Word, the Old Testament and New Testament, and this truth that the Apostle John is talking about here in his epistles. In John 1, beginning in verse 6, John states, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. The John that John is referring to here, the John that the Apostle John is referring to here is John the Baptist. John then clarifies in verse 8, he says, He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. It was extremely important for the Apostle John to insert that clarification there. Well, why so? You can flip there if you would like to, but the last phrase in all the Old Testament is found in Malachi chapter 4. In Malachi chapter 4, those are the last words that the entire people within the New Testament that particular time were left with. And this is what the, uh, the last phrase says in Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. The prophet says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I have commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel with the statutes and judgments. Okay, so he says, remember that. Because that is the law, the Mosaic law that you are living under. That is a law that many of you deem fit to make you righteous, which we find out through the gospel that it does not do so. It just shows us how unrighteous we truly are to point us to our need of the Savior. So he gives us that, and then he goes on to say, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. With that being the final words that they had, many of the children were left with to believe that when John the Baptist burst onto the scene, that he was the Elijah the prophet that the Old Testament was referring to. And so to make it absolutely perfectly clear, John the, uh, John the Apostle inserts that John the Baptist was not the true light, which is why he says he was not the light, but what? He was sent to bear witness of the light. John continues in verse 9 of John 1. That was the, what does it say? True light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. See what John did there? He introduces that word true. This statement indicates two things. First off, there were false lights, 
that we're trying to be the true light. John refers to them later on in his epistles as antichrists. But it also means that the true light is the only light that will bring light to man. John further progresses to unlock this mystery in verses 10 through 12. He says he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. The only way to the Father, the only truth that John is referring to is Jesus Christ. John refers to Jesus Christ as being full of grace and truth in verse 14. In verse 17, John states, For the law was given through Moses, but what? Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. These statements support what we discussed in our message from last week when Jesus claimed that he came to the world to reveal the truth, to, to the very truth that John referred to as the gospel in all three of his epistles, and that being Jesus Christ. So going back to 2 John, if you want to flip back there with me, going back to 2 John, when John begins this letter with the phrase, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, John is acknowledging the common relationship he has with her because of Jesus Christ. When John adds, all those who have known the truth because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever, he is speaking of the unity that only Christ can bring to a body of believers. In essence, John says this, We may all have our differences, but we all share one thing in common in our love for each other, and that is a relationship that we have in the truth, which is Jesus Christ. So now that we've dissected his greeting Let's go on to the main portion of our study here this morning, which brings us to our first point. John says, walk in, walk in truth. If we can go back there to the second one. There we go, to the first one, walk in truth. John begins in verse 4 with an acknowledgement that some are walking in the truth. He says, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth. Now, we're not giving any specifics as to why only some were walking in truth and not others. It lends us to assume that based upon the entire premise of this second letter that they perhaps had fallen prey to the false teachings. The most likely candidates of the false preachers that John is referring to here were the Gnostics. Gnosticism was extremely dangerous to Christianity for the main reason of intermixing truth with false doctrine. See, the Gnostics believed in Jesus. They accepted who Jesus was as a person, but they did one major thing, and they rejected the incarnation of Jesus. They failed to accept that Jesus was both 100% God and 100% man. So in order to build an argument against Gnosticism, John sought to undermine the very foundational teaching by focusing on the truth of Jesus Christ. John rejoices that some of the children were walking in truth, and then he adds, as we have received commandment from the Father. John is re referencing the obedience that the people had to the commands of God as delivered by the apostles. The truth that the people were walking were the truths of God's word. You don't have to flip there, but going back to the gospel of John in chapter 17, Jesus is praying to the Father right before his crucifixion, and he has several different subject points that he is praying for. He prays for uh, his disciples. He prays for himself. He prays for the future believers. But when he prays for the disciples, Jesus makes an interesting statement. In verse 14, Jesus says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not 
of the world. The word that Jesus is referring to here is the truth of the commands of God. The truth that salvation can be only obtained through Jesus Christ. Jesus states in John chapter 14, verse 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This is a completely offensive message to those in that community. A number of years ago, we had a family that was attending our church, and they had been attending for several months, and everything seemed to be going well. We had Sunday school hour. We were, we were brand new, but we were doing our best to try to give the word as clearly as we possibly could. Everything seemed to be going great. They came over to our home to talk about membership, and uh, one particular day, they just stopped coming. So after a few weeks, I followed up with them through text, and then a little bit later on, I called them just to see how we could assist them because it had been a couple of months before they ever showed up. We had no idea what had happened. In the conversation with the lady, I had heard from her husband that one of the reasons why they stopped coming was because he was offended in the fact that I preached that Jesus Christ was the only way to the Father. He felt that that was a little bit too strong for the other religions, and he wanted to hear what other religions had to say, and that I was being a little bit too strong-headed and too offensive. My response to her was in a very caring and loving but firm way. I said, ma'am, by God's grace, I will never stop preaching the supremacy of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. Jesus Christ is the only way to restore mankind's relationship with the Father. Unfortunately, that family never came back. In his prayer, Jesus cries out to the Father, I have given them your word, but the world has hated them. Jesus acknowledges the fact that disciples were hated and they would continue to be hated because of the truth of God's word. By nature, man is rebellious. We don't want the truth. But Jesus continues in his prayer. He says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Then he goes on to say this. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Jesus acknowledges that spiritual growth comes through the sanctification of God's word, the truth. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, that he might sanctify, he meaning uh, sanctifying the church and cleanse her, the church, with the washing of the water by the word. Again, going back to 2 John chapter 4, when John exudes with joy over the fact that some of the children were walking in the truth, he is acknowledging the spiritual growth that took place in those children's hearts because of their obedience and meditation to the truths of God's Word. This should not only be a priority for every Christian, but this should be a goal for every parent. Again, taking this letter at face value, I am believing that he is writing a personal letter to a mother. Imagine the encouragement that this mother would have felt in her heart to read that the Apostle John has noticed and is now praising her that her children, at least some of them, are walking in the truth. John does not commend her for the academic achievement of her kids. John does not uh, commend her for the athletic ability of her kids or the career choices of her kids. John says, thank you. And I praise God for your children's faithful obedience to God's commands. 
through this first command of John, what we see is this necessity of walking in the truths of God's word as Christians. God's word sanctifies our hearts. It shapes us and molds us into the image of his son. But John rejoices they walk in truth. But John delivers a second command that goes right along the first command, and that is walk in love. The theme of walking in love was a common theme, as we discussed just a few moments ago, all throughout the writings of John. In fact, the Apostle John is oftentimes referred to as this Apostle of Love. In verses 5 through 6, the Apostle John delivers a command of love, and then he proceeds to really define what that command looks like. And so let's first off look at the command stated. John states in verse 5, And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. Now let's pause here for a moment. It seems as at first John is being a little disrespectful to this lady. Because in our modern day culture, if we were to have a conversation with a woman and we were to insert lady towards her, it would not go over so well. And so let's look at really what John is trying to do here. Is he being rude? Is he being forceful? Is he being chauvinistic by using this? No, he's not. See, that word lady comes from the Greek term chorea, which is where we get our phrase madame. So John, by inserting lady there, is actually being very personal and loving to her, very respectful to her. He's saying, I plead with you, madame, that you would love one another. John says, I plead with you that you would love one another. He acknowledges the fact that he has already delivered this command on multiple occasions, but he wants to make sure that this command was not ignored. John was so serious about this command that he actually says an individual's failure to show love was an indicator that they did not have a relationship with the Father. If you were to go back to his first epistle, 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, John says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. We ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whosoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? What John is, the point that John is making is that through the example of Jesus' willingness to give his life for his people, for the people that, that are caught up and lost in sin, we should have that same mindset as well towards our brothers and sisters that are in need. But if we shut up our heart to someone that is in need, to someone that needs the gospel, and John says, I question to see whether or not the love of God is actually in your heart. Going back to 2 John 5, when John tells a lady that this command to love one another is not a new command, he's referring to the previous times in which he stressed it. Again, John wants to make sure that it is absolutely clear that we do not miss this command to love. But in our day and age, this command to love is oftentimes obscured. Just as people at this particular time were dealing with the false teachings of the Gnostics, we deal with the false ideas of humanism and the New Age teaching. You could drive down the road here in Chapel Hill, or any community for that matter, and it would not be long until you saw a sign that said something like, love is love, or we love all and accept all. Going back to the illustration that I gave at the beginning of the message, when I received a question regarding our church's relationships or stance regarding same-sex relationships, the answer to that question can be tricky not to answer, but to communicate. Well, why so? Because many people take verses like what John is saying here in loving one another to equate that to a complete acceptance of anything that an individual deems fit for their life. 
going, uh, it, it, which brings us really to the command to find here as he, as, he, as he labels that out. In verse 6, John states, This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the command that, I have, that you've had from the beginning, that you should walk in it. Notice that John does not say this. This is love that you accept everyone as they are. John does not state, this is love that you keep your mouth shut and never proclaim the gospel. John says, this is love that you walk according to his commandments. The very definition of love is obedience to the words and the commands of God. John, once again, assuming that his audience has already read the first epistle, states in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3-6, through 6, By this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, truly the love of God is perfected in Him. By this we know that we are in Him. He who says He abides in Him ought also to walk just as He walked. To walk in love is to walk in the obedience to the commands of God and properly demonstrate that love towards other people. Going back to 2 John, verse 13, Jesus says, uh, I'm sorry, the Gospel of John, chapter 13, Jesus says, A new command I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. You ought also to love one another. By this you know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Once again, Jesus is stressing this love that we have for each other, whether they're a brother or a sister or an unsaved person, but we have that love for the sake of the Gospel. One author paints a, a scenario in this way. He says, let's suppose that a person went to the doctor and they clearly were not healthy, but they go to the doctor for their routine physical exam and the doctor listens to their heart and takes a look at their, you know, all the vital signs in their body and responds back, you are a specimen of health. Go home and just live your life because you are doing fantastic. Well, that person goes home and they walk up the stairs and on the way up their stairs, their heart gives out. And they go back to the hospital, and they, after having a minor heart attack, and the doctor comes in, and, and, the, and the person begins to question the doctor. And the person that had the heart attack finds out that they were actually one jelly donut away from the Grim Reaper. Their health was bad. So they begin to pursue the doctor and question the doctor, why wouldn't you just tell me the truth? The doctor responds, well, I knew your body was in worse shape than the Pillsbury Doughboy, but I felt to tell people, if I was to tell them stuff like that, then they, they really, honestly, they get kind of offended. And it's bad for business, and so they don't come back. I want this office to be a safe space where everyone feels loved and feels accepted. If you were given that answer, you would be furious. You would say to the doctor, when it comes to my body, I want the truth. At the end of the earth here at the end of the world the bible talks about how every single christian is going to stand before the lord and have to give an account of their life not for their sin but for their life that's called the judgment seat of christ but all those that died without christ all those that died without restoring their relationship to the father has to stand before the lord at another judgment known as the great white throne judgment it's at that time where jesus opens up the book of life and looks for those names of course he doesn't see any of those names there and it's at that moment that they receive their final damnation, and that is to be cast forever in eternity in the lake of fire. And could you imagine if there was a person that was standing in line that ended up dying, and there's a person you knew that you never shared the gospel with, that you rarely prayed for, because we did not want to offend them. We wanted to show love to them by helping them or 
hoping that they would figure things out on their own. And so we never confronted them regarding their sin in love. Could you imagine that person turning to you and saying, when it comes to my eternal destiny, I want the truth. That's what Jesus says here. To love someone is to love them for the sake of the gospel. You don't just accept every sin that's out there. You don't accept any sin that's out there. You don't go around and beat them upside the head with judgment. But you do lovingly confront them and say, listen, we're all on this road of a messed up journey. But Jesus sent his son to die on our behalf so that through the grace of God, we can have our relationship with the Father restored. This is love. As we close this morning, if you really think about it, The two commands that John gives in our passage to walk in truth and to walk in love are really rehashes of the commands that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 27. Jesus states in Matthew 27, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You know this verse well. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he adds this phrase, On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And what is he referring to when he adds that phrase there? If you were to go back to the Old Testament law and you were to look at the Ten Commandments, every single one of those Ten Commandments could be fully uh, obeyed if we simply love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our mind, and soul, and we loved our neighbor as ourselves. See, if we loved God, then we would place no other gods before him. If we loved God, we would set up no idols or use his name in vain. If we loved God, we would give him priority. If we loved our neighbor with a biblical love, then we would tell them the truth. We would not kill. We would not commit adultery. We would not steal from them. We would not covet their belongings. This is why Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbors yourself. Obviously, that's not possible without salvation. It is only through Christ that our relationship with the Father is restored. It is only through Christ that we have the power through the Holy Spirit to love. And so the question for us here this morning is, how much do we love God? How much do we love our neighbor? To love God and to love our neighbor is to walk in truth and to walk in love.